the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, March 2nd, 1923. I'm Sally Helm. In Wichita, Kansas, Mary Irby and Una Hollowell are being held at the city jail. They were arrested on the charge of lewdly abiding, basically standing around in such a way that the authorities thought they might be selling sex. Now, officials are trying to decide whether they're a threat to the public order. Today, they'll learn their fate. It's in the hands of a city health official named Dr. Milton O. Nyberg. He takes his job very seriously. In Kansas Municipalities, a magazine for city officials, he describes an ideal city health officer this way, quote, he must be fearless. His job includes stuff like making sure the city's milk supply is healthy and safe, keeping trash out of the streets, and also preventing the spread of communicable diseases. It's in this last capacity that he gets involved with Hollowell and Irby. After their arrest, the two women are forced to undergo a gynecological exam to see if they have a sexually transmitted infection, syphilis or gonorrhea. These infections are extremely common at the time. And according to Nyberg, both women are found to have gonorrhea. And so on March 2nd, he issues an order of commitment. It's directed to the county sheriff. Sir, it begins. By the authority of the rules and regulations for the control and suppression of venereal disease in the state of Kansas, it goes on in that officialese for a few paragraphs, and the upshot is, Hollowell and Irby will be incarcerated. They'll be quarantined at a facility called the Kansas State Industrial Farm for Women. Hollowell and Irby do not want to go. They try to challenge this order in court. They say they're not selling sex and they're willing to pay the bond to get out of jail. But a judge looks the case over and says, no, these women are a danger. Put them on the farm. And so a few weeks later, Hollowell and Irby are driven about 200 miles to a facility in Lansing, Kansas. When they arrive, they see a smattering of little buildings administrative cottages, cottages where the incarcerated women live and work, and a disciplined cottage known as the Brick Hotel. And all around them are other women, inmates, some of whom are also there because an official has declared that they have an STI. This isn't just happening in Kansas. Across the country, many, many women are suffering the same fate. But a lot of them think they're suffering alone. Something that I'm consistently struck by reading these accounts is just the predominance of shame. Lots and lots of women thought that this was happening, maybe not to them alone, but that they were one of a small number of people who were being detained under this program. When in fact, during the like mid-1910s, there were 30,000 women incarcerated under the American plan. And over the coming decades, even through the 1960s, there are tens of thousands more. Today, the American plan. How were so many American women incarcerated against their will just because someone thought they had an STI? And how did those women fight back? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The American Plan this mass incarceration of American women with suspected STIs, it happened right out in the open. But somehow, not a lot of people know the story. Scott Stern first heard about it as a throwaway line in a lecture during his freshman year of college. I was in a class called Media and Medicine in Modern America, and the professor said during World War I, there were even concentration camps for prostitutes in this country. And there was something about that phrase that really struck me. So I took a break from note-taking and um, Googled it and didn't find very much. Stern would spend the next several years researching obsessively to put together the story in a book. He's now probably the world's foremost expert on the American plan. That plan begins to form in 1917, when the U.S. enters World War I. For the first time since the Civil War, the military institutes a draft. Training camps spring up all over the country for the new recruits. And at these camps, a new epidemic also springs up. STIs. The military authorities did sort of a systematic examination of the troops for health, and they found that a a shockingly large proportion of them had syphilis or gonorrhea. And they were terrified that this was going to basically affect the war effort. It could be a national security risk. And officials begin to place the blame for this on, basically, women. There's a popular line of thinking at the time. That, quote-unquote, empty-headed young women were being drawn to the troops and that they were going to corrupt the troops morally. So government officials decide they need to clamp down on this threat. They institute so-called moral zones around military camps, five- or ten-mile areas where federal officials can round up and punish people who are suspected of selling sex. And if women in that zone are suspected of having an STI, they can be forcibly quarantined. The STIs these officials are particularly concerned with are syphilis and gonorrhea, which can both be dangerous. Many cases are mild, but if left untreated, they can be deadly. Gonorrhea can spread to the blood or joints and cause a serious infection. Syphilis can damage the heart and even cause something called syphilitic dementia, where your mind deteriorates. Now, it's worth saying that a lot of people in the U.S. at this time had syphilis or gonorrhea. If you took someone off the street, male or female, there was a very good chance that they would test positive for syphilis or gonorrhea. And this was because there were no effective treatments at all at the time for gonorrhea and very limited treatments for syphilis. In fact, one of the men involved in these enforcement efforts in the late 1910s ended up getting syphilis himself. Succumbing to syphilitic dementia as this man is supposed to be enforcing the morality of these supposedly dangerous young women, this was like a huge embarrassment to the federal authorities. But the irony does not deter them. And in fact, the federal government soon decides that these moral zones are just not big enough. Not everywhere in the country was near a military installation. In fact, most of the country was not within five or 10 miles of a military base. But some powerful people want the whole country to be a moral zone. 
Stern says there's a lot of anxiety at this time about changing norms around gender and sex. Rates of divorce were going up. Rates of premarital sex were skyrocketing. More and more women were gaining access to higher education. More and more women were beginning to work outside of the home. There was a huge fear at this time of, quote-unquote, women astray, which is basically like young women living without their families, without a man, in cities, and possibly going out and having sex. And so in early 1918, several officials in the federal government drafted a model law. It's like a page and a half. It's not long. A law that gave local authorities the authority to detain, forcibly examine, and incarcerate women based on syphilis or gonorrhea. Quick note on that term, model law. This is actually still a thing today. Basically, someone writes a law that states and cities can copy, essentially verbatim, and pass in their states. By the early 1920s, every single U.S. state has a law like this on the books, allowing public health officials to forcibly examine and quarantine women who are suspected of having STIs. And with these laws, the American plan is born. It's called the American plan to distinguish it from other countries that had similar plans. There was also the French plan and the English plan. You can almost hear these turn-of-the-century bureaucrats getting squeamish about SDIs being like, um, let's just call it something vague. The American plan. But in practice, the law is not vague at all. It is very real and very pervasive. The way it would work is that usually a male, sometimes a female official, would be walking down the street and they would see a woman who looked, quote-unquote, reasonably suspicious of either having syphilis or gonorrhea or of being a sex worker. Now, there's an obvious problem here. You cannot look at someone and tell if they have syphilis or gonorrhea, but this was sort of the standard at the time. So what did constitute reasonably suspicious? A woman walking down the street alone. A woman walking down the street with a man. A woman sitting at a restaurant alone. A woman sitting at a restaurant with a man. A woman buying alcohol. A woman being with a man who was buying alcohol. Stern told us there are even examples where public health officials use this reasonable suspicion standard to basically try and harass women who refuse to have sex with them. Hollowell and Irby, those two women in Kansas, they get caught up in the American plan because they're suspected of being sex workers. And like many women incarcerated under the American plan, history pretty much loses track of them at the Kansas State Industrial Farm. We don't know exactly how long they were incarcerated or how their lives were impacted after. But Stern, in his research, found one woman whose story comes through a little more clearly. And it exemplifies what many thousands of incarcerated women would have gone through. The woman's name is Nina McCall. She's in some ways a prototypical person who was incarcerated under the American plan. In 1918, McCall is 18 years old, living in Michigan. St. Louis, Michigan, which is a very small town, smack dab in the middle of Michigan. It was called the middle of the... St. Louis, Michigan, not St. Louis, Missouri. Yes, yes, St. Louis, Michigan. It's a town of like 2,000 people at the time. Michigan kind of looks like a mitten, so it's called the middle of the mitten. McCall is a white woman, working class, the grandchild of immigrants. Her father had died two years earlier, and her family was struggling financially. And one morning in October 1918, it's actually Halloween, she's out doing errands. 
she goes into the post office and about 10 a.m. she exits the post office and all of a sudden she sees the deputy sheriff who is someone she actually knows. He's the father of a friend of hers. She'd, she'd been in his home. But this day he sort of makes eye contact with her and says, essentially, you have to come with me. The health officer believes that you have venereal disease. McCall doesn't know why this is happening. She'll later learn that these officers had seen her hanging out with soldiers, going on drives, and that's why they picked her up. But on this day, she's completely confused and frightened. She's allowed to go home to get her mother. The family is living above a garage on West Washington Street. McCall walks up the stairs, sobbing. Her mother, Minnie, tries to console her and then goes with her to the office of Dr. Thomas J. Carney. The health officer examines her for gonorrhea, which is basically a gynecological exam. She'd never had a gynecological exam before. It was shocking to her and also quite painful. She starts to bleed as a result of the exam. A few minutes later, the health officer comes out and the way Nina later testified about it, he says, I pronounced this young woman slightly infected. And she said, that can't possibly be true. I've never had sex. And he says, I didn't say you had sex. I said you were slightly infected with gonorrhea, which, by the way, makes no sense medically. You're either infected or you're not. McCall is crying. She insists this can't be right. And eventually, he turns on her and he thunders, young lady, do you mean to call me a liar? Um, And she responds, yes, sir, I do. If, If you say I have this infection, yes, I do. It's important to remember just how bold an 18-year-old woman would have had to have been in the year 1918 to call a male authority figure a liar to his face. But in spite of this boldness, Nina is coerced into committing herself to the Bay City Detention Hospital. Coerced because the other options are ludicrous. If she doesn't go to the hospital, she'd have to pay a $200 fee, almost $3,500 today, for home doctor visits. Her family just doesn't have the money. And she'd also have a big red placard with the words venereal disease posted on their home, which is humiliating. So instead, she's taken to the Bay City Detention Hospital. She was forced to share a small room with three other women. She was forced to do a lot of labor. She scrubbed floors and washed dishes. And she was forced to undergo the common medical treatments of the time, which was injections of mercury and an arsenic-based drug called neoarsphenamine. Treatments for an STI that she more than likely does not have. And these drugs have terrible side effects. Her teeth get loose, her hair falls out, she can't sleep, she's in tremendous pain. And she has to stay in this facility for three months. This is the kind of fate that many, many women across the country are beginning to suffer. Local officials in towns and cities are arresting any women that they deem to be a danger. And these authorities were often sort of playing out their own bigoted philosophy about who was likely to have syphilis and gonorrhea and who was likely to be a promiscuous person. Almost all of the women who are incarcerated under the American plan are working class. Many of them, like McCall, are white because a huge percentage of the country is white. But in cities like Detroit, in McCall's home state of Michigan, around 90% of the women being arrested are Black. And if you go to the Texas-Mexico border in El Paso during the 1910s, not only were Mexican and Mexican-American women more likely to be detained under the American plan, but the darker their skin, the longer they would spend behind bars. 
people offered all kinds of racist justifications for these disparities. As late as the 1940s, the U.S. Surgeon General himself said that Black women were more likely to spread syphilis for anatomical reasons, which is completely bunk medically. But this was the, like, the literal chief public health officer in the country saying this. And as women are being arrested and incarcerated, they're also fighting back, sometimes literally. There are examples of them holding their captors hostage with like a butcher's knife or tying them up. That was less common than just basically jumping out a window or, or tying a bunch of sheets together and scaling the wall. There are a surprisingly large number of examples of American planned institutions catching fire. And certainly many of those look like cases of arson. And there are some like confirmed cases of arson. So that was another means of resistance. There was a practice at the time called smashing out, which is where women would break every window in the place. Basically, this was like a prison riot to signal their profound displeasure with this injustice. There are also some particularly harrowing cases of resistance. One woman in San Diego goes on a hunger strike. Another in Seattle jumps out of the window of an American plan institution to her death. But many women, like Nina McCall, simply serve out their terrible sentences. And when they get out, it's not like life goes back to normal. When McCall returns to St. Louis, Michigan... Her whole life is upside down. So many people in this very small community had heard what had happened to her. And as a result, she was like basically a pariah. She can't get a job in town. Then she finds one in another town several miles away. But when they hear about her incarceration, she's fired. And through all of this... There's a probation officer who is basically harassing her, telling her she needs to report to the same health officer who originally examined her for repeated follow-ups and continued injections of mercury on an outpatient basis. The American plan has essentially ruined McCall's life. But then, in a stroke of strange luck, she meets a woman who wants to help her fight. 
I actually spoke to her great-granddaughter, and she's remembered in her family as an independent thinker. She was the only member of her family who was a Christian scientist, and she was probably the only member of the local community who was a Christian scientist. And that's a relevant detail because Christian scientists were skeptical of medical authority. And so because of that, were some of the only consistent opponents of the American plan. Givens hears about McCall's case and convinces her to file a lawsuit, which she does, almost a year to the day after the start of her incarceration. This was an incredibly courageous thing to do, to go in public and testify about what happened to you and insist that you are not being treated justly. McCall's case actually makes it to the state Supreme Court, and they rule in her favor, but in a very narrow way. They say the law under which she was examined and incarcerated is totally fine. But in this case, the authorities didn't meet the standard of reasonable suspicion. It's just in this specific case, it doesn't appear that the authorities had reasonable suspicion. And with this ruling, McCall herself is in some ways free. She can finally stop taking those horrible, painful medical treatments. But overall... The decision actually upholds American plan laws in Michigan. This case, ironically, ends up getting cited down the road to justify the continuation of the American plan. And the American plan does continue for decades. It affects tens of thousands of American women. And it's important to note, a lot of prominent people are on record supporting this. Eleanor Roosevelt was a promoter of the American plan and actually spoke about it at meetings of other prominent women, she sort of emphasized its quote-unquote protective elements, that it would protect and uplift fallen women. Even the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association, even the ACLU came out in favor of the American plan. This was a very mainstream and public thing to, to support. But as time passes, things start to change. Beginning in the 1940s, penicillin becomes a widely available treatment for syphilis and gonorrhea. Also, the 60s and 70s usher in a wave of sexual liberation for women. People get more used to the idea that women are living outside the home, going to universities, having sex. So the American plan laws begin to come under more scrutiny. I asked Stern, when does enforcement of the American plan laws start to peter out and why does that happen? Yes, well, I'm glad you said Peter out because that's exactly what happened. Um, a lot of people think there was like a definitive endpoint, but it really was city to city, state to state. Piecemeal, in all these places, people fight back. In San Francisco, for example, the rise of the sex workers' rights movement in the early 1970s brings down some of these laws. There's the creation of an organization called Coyote, Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics. And one of Coyote's first priorities was to end the vestigial enforcement of the American plan in the Bay Area. The ACLU, which, remember, had once supported the plan, helps Coyote bring it down. What the courts end up saying is, you can continue to enforce these laws, but it has to be gender neutral. And so authorities immediately stop enforcing that law. Similar things play out in other places. In New York, for example, an 18-year-old anti-war activist named Andrea Dworkin endures a forced gynecological exam in the 1960s under an American plan law, and then later helps bring that law down. And eventually... By the early 1970s, almost everywhere in the country stopped enforcing the American plan. But these laws, while not enforced, are in many cases still on the books. 
Stern says, we don't have to worry that they're going to be used to bring the American plan back. Locking up thousands of women like that wouldn't be legally or socially acceptable today. But still, a 40-year incarceration program like that doesn't just go away. It's really the moment in history when you start seeing massive numbers of women being locked up. And what's really interesting about the American plan is that a, a number of American plan institutions end up later getting repurposed as general women's prisons. So they, so the American plan literally laid the foundation for the rise of, of the mass incarceration of women. Stern says he also hears echoes of the American plan in public health discourse today. This continued scapegoating of certain members of the population, I really see that as part and parcel of the American plan. He thinks of the American plan, for example, when he sees stories about how people of color are more likely to be arrested for not wearing masks, or the way people of Chinese descent have been unfairly blamed and targeted during the pandemic. Stern says that in this modern public health crisis, he doesn't see a forcible quarantine on the horizon. But also, the impulses that gave rise to the American plan seemed to him to be alive and well. So while the plan itself is not about to be brought back, we still need to be careful. We've seen just how far things can go. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.